Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. So Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and we will read this in a second. But in our passage this morning, what we're going to find is we're going to find a call to live. And so the preacher, as, as he's winding down uh, this book, as, he, as he's bringing in the plane for a landing, as it were, he brings together some themes in these verses that have really been present throughout this book. Uh, and in light of these themes, in light of kind of the reality of, of life under the sun, the preacher calls us to live. And so, so I've titled the sermon, A Call to Live. And so he calls us to live, but he calls us to live in a specific way. Now I'll show you the outline in a minute, but let me just lay, lay out kind of the, the, the overview um, of, this, of this passage. So if you see there uh, in verses 1 through 6 of 11, the preacher is going to call us to live in, in these first six verses in a certain way in light of, of uncertainty. So, so he's, going to, he's going to paint this picture of an uncertain world. He's going to say, in light of the uncertainty, you should live a specific way. And then in verses 7 through 10 of that same chapter, he's going to call us to live a certain way in light of a, a coming judgment. So that the focus is going to be on the coming judgment. And then as, as we transition to chapter 12, the first eight verses is all we'll cover this morning. But in, in, in those verses... In some very descriptive and, and powerful verses, the preacher calls us to live in a way, uh, a specific way, in light of our approaching death. Okay, and so while all these situations are, are somewhat unique, and his specific instructions are, are not the same, the common theme, and, and why I've called this uh, sermon a, a, a call to live, is that there is a unifying theme. And that theme is that he calls us to live in a specific way, and that specific way is a Godward way, or a God-centered nature. So in, the, in these verses, the, a call to live is a call to a God-centered life. And so we're going to see that in all three of these sections. And so, so I just want to, so if you, you look there in verses 1 through 6, I just want to show you where I see that theme of, of the God-centered nature of this call, because it's, it's there in all three of these sections. So in, in verses 1 through 6, right, he's going to paint this picture that mystery is surrounding events and circumstances of life, that there are things we can't control. But he's going to argue, see there in verse 5, there's a God who makes everything. So there's the work of God that controls even the uncertain things. And so a God-centered life recognizes that the work of God who made everything is, is in control. And then there in verses 7 through 10, the preacher is going to argue that life while we have it is good and should be enjoyed. We should rejoice in our years. He is going to argue in the, in the joy, in our pursuit of joy and pleasure, a God-centered life recognizes that, that there's a coming judgment Okay, so he says, God will bring you to, into judgment there in verse 9. So again, there's the, the God-centered theme. And because of that, we're to live a certain way, even in the pursuit of our joy and our pleasures. And then finally, in verses 1 through 8, right there in verse 1 of chapter 12, there's a call to remember also your creator. Okay, so, so all that follows in verses 1 through 8 is a remembering of your creator, which is, we'll see is more than just a mental ascent. It's a call to to live a God-centered life. Okay, and so in all three sections, the focus of the preacher is on God. So whether it's living in the midst of uncertainty or living in, in the expectation of, of judgment or living on the road to death, in all these cases, we're called to live and we're called to live God-centered lives. Okay, so, so that's, kind of, that's kind of the lay of the land. Let's, let's actually read the passage. I mean, so I'm gonna read, you can follow along. I'm gonna start in verse one of chapter 11 and read through verse 8 of chapter 12. 
So Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, the preacher writes, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes into the bones of the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Let's pray together. Father, we confess the ease with which we live our, our lives apart from you, Father, we recognize, I recognize that our natural inclination is towards independence and not towards dependence or trust. And so I ask that you'd use these verses to convict us, to instruct us, and ultimately, Father, to conform us into the image of your Son, our Lord, whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so the outline, very basic. I I have kind of gone over it already. So we're going to see first, life in the midst of uncertainty there in verses 1 through 6. Then life in the shadow of judgment, verses 7 through 10 of chapter 11. And then finally, the the first eight verses of chapter 12, we'll see life on the road to death. So let's begin there by looking at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 11. And so in these first six verses, the main idea is found there in verses 5 and 6. So in verse 5, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So here's an analogy that's going to make his point in these first verses. And it's an analogy, notice, that highlights mystery. He says, just like you don't know the the work of God who makes everything, you don't know that just like you don't know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman who is with child. 
Now, this is a mystery. We can't explain it. We can't know how this happens. And we would be crazy not to recognize that it is indeed a mystery. Now, now I recognize the point of the preacher isn't for us to get caught up in the first part of this analogy, but, but I do think it's worth at least pausing and recognizing the mysterious, yes, but, but more importantly, the majestic work of God in the creation of new life. I mean, notice what he said. Did you hear? The Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. Now, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. That, that's not the, the Spirit he's talking about, but he's talking about personhood, soul, spirit. I'd say the soul of a person. And his teaching is that the, the soul of a person is present in the womb. Now, we can affirm that, and we should affirm that, but we also recognize that an affirmation, simply an affirmation, is about as far as we can go. The depths of of the work, of that work, are far beyond our reach. There's mystery. How in the world does that happen? I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Think you go from an empty womb to a womb that contains not, not just potential for human life, not just rapidly forming unique body parts, not just physical stuff, But you go from an empty womb to a womb that is incubating not just a physical body, but a person, a human person. And that happens. Like, it happens. And we don't know how it happens. We don't know when it happens. We don't know why it happens. But we know it happens. And it's the work of God. This rapidly growing physical body has a spirit. It's a person. A soul dwells in the womb. What a mystery. I mean, some of you may have a, a, a person dwelling in you right now. You don't even know it. It doesn't, doesn't change the fact that the spirit joins with the, the bones in the womb. And so the preacher says, rightly so, it is mysterious. It's outside of our understanding, outside of our control. I mean, we can't make that happen. We can't put a person in the womb, even as far as we've gone with, with the, the IVF. You can't put the soul with the stuff. God does that. We can't explain how it happens. And that mysterious event, the preacher says, is just one example of the work of God who makes everything. This is one small test case where God does stuff that we don't understand. He's saying, this is one small part, and just like you don't know how that happens, that is the case with a lot of things in this created order. In other words, we don't and can't understand everything that happens under the sun. But, and here's where the preacher wants us to go, we should understand that there is a God whose work involves everything under the sun. In other words, there's mystery, but we know that God is in control. We know, in the words of the nursery rhyme, he's got the whole wide world in his hands. That's the point here. And because of that, verse 6, the preacher says you ought to live boldly. You ought to live generously. You ought to act now. Verse 6, notice what he says. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. In other words, at, at evening, don't just stop because you think you've done all that you should do. In the evening, withhold not your hand, for you don't know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. And so when uncertainty, un- when uncertainty abounds, we act in such a way that shows our confidence is in the Lord. We act in such a way because we aren't in control. God is in control. And so we sow our seed in the morning, and we don't withhold our hand at night. We don't know which will prosper. We don't know whether both alike will be good. 
I mean, if you think about it, here's the thing. If we knew what was going to happen, if we could predict the future, if we had guarantees regarding what would generate profit and what would work out for our advantage, we wouldn't have to do much. And even worse, we wouldn't have to trust God. But as it is, we don't know, and therefore we work diligently and faithfully trusting the God who makes everything. We act. I mean, this, this is what he's calling us to there in verses 1 through one and 2. Specifically, cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after many days. Or verse 2, give a portion to 7 or even 8, for you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. So I think the point here, regardless of, of how you want to understand cast your bread on the waters, whether it's, it's a physical casting of bread on waters that you find, or whether it's investing in overseas trade, a lot of people will, will interpret it that way. Regardless, I think the point is that there's uncertainty that abounds in life regarding what's going to happen next and what, what your investments will return to you. There, there's just mystery, uncertainty. And in the midst of that, the preacher is calling us to be willing to part with what we need. I mean, notice, I do think he's intentionally using what, what are necessities, He's saying, get rid of, cast away, give away what you need. In the first case, bread. In the second case, your portion. And I I think that the underlying point is when God is in control and not you, when God is in control, not the market, or not your financial advisor, or not your governing authority, or not a celebrity, or not a horoscope, or not a fortune cookie, or not anything else, when God is in control, trusting him is, is expressed by willingness to part with your possessions, to give it away, to be generous. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if you're going to be here next week. Why withhold for a rainy day? You don't know. So you can trust God by parting with your possessions. The God word life recognizes that God, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, is not unable to meet your needs. The God word life recognizes that everything that you have, hear that, everything that you have, everything that I have, is a blessing that we have received from the gracious and generous hand of God. And everything ought to be received and recycled as such a gift. What do you have that you haven't received? If you've received it, why do you act as though you, you, you haven't received it? The Godward life recognizes that the earth and its cycles and the events, that they're going to happen And it may seem chaotic to us, but it's not chaotic to God. He is in control, and we can't stop it. I mean, that's the point of verses 3 and 4. Clouds are going to fill up with rain and empty themselves. Right? We, unless we're maybe Elijah or Jesus, we can't go and say, hey, I I got something to do today. Don't rain. Right? It's going to rain when it's time to rain. Just like when a tree falls, it's going to fall where it's going to fall, and there it's going to lay. We are not in control. And so waiting for the perfect time to do anything is always going to lead to further waiting because the perfect time, the preacher says, never comes. The time is never just right. And so the Godward life stops waiting and acting like, okay, I'm going to eventually know what's going to happen. I'm going to eventually be able to control this. The Godward life recognizes that and just trusts God and acts now. And so while we we may not know the works of God, the preacher argues that because we know the God of works, we can live confidently. We can live and act confidently now, trusting the sovereignty of God, trusting God in the midst of uncertainty. This leads to a a second section there, verses 7 through 10 of chapter 11, as he transitions. Now his focus is is going to shift from from uncertainty to now death. And so now the, the next of 
of these verses, both the coming passages are going to be a, a focus on death. And while death has been a common theme throughout the, the, this book, here in verses 7 through 10, there's a specific focus on judgment. And so we're going to look at life in the shadow of judgment. So look there in verses 7 through 10. And so as you look at these next verses, the caution is that judgment is coming and that the coming judgment should affect living now. So live now in light of the coming judgment. But it's interesting to note what type of living the preacher commends. And and what I mean is this. If you think of someone cautioning you to live carefully in light of a coming judgment, it's it's often a certain type of living they're trying to to urge you to. It's often a list of rules or or maybe do's and don'ts. And it's often a joyless, fear-inducing tone. You better not or else judgment is coming. I mean, it's comparable to a lot of the current talk surrounding a big, jolly, white-bearded man. You better be good or else you better not pout. You better not cry. And so, so the cautions are given to, to in, a, in a way to just manipulate behavior. Just don't be bad or else there's going to be consequences. There's going to be judgment. Now, while that's often the case, that's not at all what the preacher does in these verses. Now, we'll see he does get to judgment, but the kind of life he calls us to in light of judgment is not what you would think. So look there at verses 7 through 9. Verse 7, light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Verse 8, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So verse 8, if a person lives many years, the preacher says, let him rejoice in how many of them? All of them. He says, let him rejoice in all of them. Enjoy every year of your life, the preacher says. Which, which, which as we've seen already, the preacher believes that your life and my life was meant to be enjoyed Therefore, the preacher wants you and me to enjoy it. So he says, however many years you live, enjoy them all. Verse 9, he continues, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways your heart of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. And so he focuses specifically on rejoicing and enjoying, and enjoying your youth. And so in verse 9, enjoy your younger years, he says, your early years. And he says this, notice, because he knows that the days of your youth will not last forever. Can I get an amen? You look back, there's a day coming when you're going to look back on your early years and you realize that things have changed. It's not the same as it once was. And so the preacher doesn't want you to regret not enjoying the days of your youth. And so he says, enjoy your early years. Now, I know I'm not alone in realizing that our early years are often spent longing for and wishing for the days ahead. So, so, so maybe I am alone. I don't think I am. Whether it's being done with school, I can't, I can't wait till I don't have to go to school anymore. Maybe boys and girls, you feel that way. Maybe you can't wait to be done with high school or, or college or whatever. You, you look ahead to that day. Or maybe it's getting married. I can't wait till I get married. Or I can't wait to buy a house or to have a career or I can't wait to retire and and get my social security income. I can't wait to have grandkids or great grandkids. We look ahead and we long for what's ahead, whatever it is. And so we spend our present years looking ahead, wishing we were there. And two things tend to happen. One, we finally get there 
And what's the outcome? It's not as good as we thought. It's like, this is it? This is kind of boring. I thought this would be funner. So that's the first thing that happens. But the second thing that happens, which is, I would say, even more disheartening, is that when we finally get there, we realize that we wasted an opportunity to enjoy our younger years. We didn't, even, we didn't enjoy them because we're just waiting to get somewhere we weren't supposed to be. We spend all of our years pining for something ahead, and we miss the time that we had. And so the preacher says, don't waste your opportunities for enjoyment. Enjoy the day in front of you. And to pinpoint his focus to highlight the urgency of his call, he brings, he brings into light this, this end point, the dead end, if you will, of your opportunity to enjoy life. Enjoy the years that God grants you life because, the preacher says, the days of darkness will be many, which is his way of simply saying you're going to die one day. And when you do, you're going to be dead a lot longer than you were alive. In other words, your time on earth is limited. Your clock is ticking. No matter how old you are right now, your clock is ticking. Your, your window is closing. Your life is fleeting. And with your fleeting life, so also fleeting is the window of your enjoyment. And once it closes, you can't go back. And so he says, enjoy the life that you have now. And it, this isn't limited in its application. So, so youth here doesn't really limit the scope of application since, notice, the days of youth are simply defined, I would say here, as the days that you're alive. So it's not just a call to those young people. Rather, it's a call to the alive people. Young or old, it's a call. Enjoy your life as long as you possess it. If you're here and you're alive, you should heed the preacher's commands or advice. Enjoy your life now. Now, we've been with the preacher through a long time, traveling this road through Ecclesiastes, and we recognize this isn't just a license to sow your wild oats while you're young. That's not his point. And if you, if you look at that and think that's what he's saying, you need to go back and read his mindset, what, what he's urging us to. His point is to enjoy your life as a gift from God while you have it, for as long as you have it. In fact, he has said, that is why you have life, is to enjoy it. And to stress the importance of this task, the preacher at the end of verse 9 reminds you, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. In other words, you are going to be held accountable, not just for how you get your enjoyment, but also that you find enjoyment. And so I, I, I have to simply say that there are routes to joy that should not be pursued, that are prohibited. So hear that. Right? This is not just, just cast off all, all, all boundaries. There are routes to joy that can lead to great pain and sorrow. And so this enjoyment, far from being an affirmation of all roads that lead to joy, is instead an affirmation and an encouragement towards the God-approved means of joy. The Godward life, the preacher would say, is the life of joy and satisfaction, and pleasure. We'll see that next week, or in, in two weeks, when we see the, the final section of this entire book. I mean, as one commentator notes, joy is to be pursued, pursued within the boundaries set by goodness and virtue, the boundaries set by God. So, so there are boundaries, but the preacher calls us to enjoy the life that God has given us. Therefore, verse 10, remove vexation from your heart, put away pain from your body, for youth in the dawn of life are vanity or are fleeting. Enjoy life while you can. Your younger years will only last but so long, and then they will be gone. Your youth will give way soon to middle age, which will give way soon to old age, which will 
give way soon to the grave. And the grave, that's the focus of the first eight verses in chapter 12, which we'll turn to in a second. But first, before we look at those, I just want to make clear what I think the preacher's talking about from verse 9 by way of application. That's application regarding the coming judgment. So, so, so look there at verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 11, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Now, verse 9 reads like a command. Rejoice in your youth. Right? Rejoice is functioning as an imperative. It is a command. It's do something. And so the preacher is calling the reader to rejoice. And, and this call is not optional. Enjoyment is a command, which, which, which now as we step back and we say, okay, the preacher's commanding us to do something that God commands us to do, which means, now this, 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 this helps us understand the judgment he's talking about. If enjoyment is a command from God, to break God's command is always to trample his law and to invite his judgment, which is the surprising thing here. It doesn't seem like the coming judgment is going to be for pursuing joy in unwise or sinful ways. So he's not saying, hey, don't go outside the bounds or you're going to be judged, though that's true. Rather, the judgment here appears to be whether or not we obey the command to enjoy our lives, to rejoice in our youth. The preacher is actually including our enjoyment of God's world or our lack of it as one of the things that God will call to account in his final reckoning. I mean, does that, that transforms how you understand this mention of the coming judgment. Enjoyment is not only permitted, it's commanded here. It's not an opportunity, it's a divine imperative. And so the application would simply be, pursue joy, aim for joy. When you wake up in the morning, aim for joy in God's world, in God's life that he's given you to live. Ask God to give you eyes to see the world that he's made for you. I mean, we should walk around in constant awe and wonder of the goodness and graciousness of God to us. We, we need eyes to see it if we're not seeing it. Ask God to, to give you eyes to see this world as, as his gift, as something to be enjoyed. And, and, and live gladly and joyfully. One writer says, drink deeply from the wells of abundant goodness that God has lavished on you. And so the call is simply to, to joy. I mean, this is our third Sunday in Advent. It's the rejoice candle. We lit, we lit the pink one. So rejoice, enjoy life. I mean, ask, ask the simple question, am I a joyful person? And it may be helpful. Think of joylessness like other sins. Because I mean, if the command is to joy, right, to lack joy is to disobey a divine imperative, and so that's sin. And so think about it like lust. Right? So, so, if you, so, so if you have lust, and you have lustful thoughts, you respond, you say, oh my goodness, I've got to stop that. I've got to turn from that. That's not God-honoring. I want to repent, and I want to change. I want to think pure thoughts. So, so think of joylessness like lust. Are, are, are you in a mood of joylessness? Turn from it. Repent of it. God commands you to enjoy life. You don't have lack of resources. If you're joyless, open your eyes. Ask God to give you eyes to see. Enjoy your life. 
Well, thirdly, let's look finally, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12. He continues in his focus on death, life on the road to death. And so here in verses 1 through 8, the motivation for living now is a poetic description of, of old age gradually making its mark and having its way. And so in these verses, we're going to see there's a day coming. Actually, there are years coming, he would say, when it will be difficult to remember God. There are days coming, some of you may feel like you're there already, where it will seem impossible to live God-centered lives. Therefore, verse 1, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, meaning the years or the days. And so the preacher's advice is to start early on this pathway of joyful existence before God. To start early on this pathway, ensure knowledge that life will only ever become more challenging as time passes. And as we move inexorably toward the darkness of death. So this call of the preacher here in verse 1 is to remember. And it's not just a mental exercise. He's calling us to remember. It's, it's a whole person thing. Remember, live differently. Live a God-centered life is what he's calling us to. One commentator says, to remember him is no perfunctory or purely mental act. It's to drop our pretense of self-sufficiency and commit ourselves to him. Remembrance can be a matter of passionate fidelity, faithfulness, a, a matter of loyalty. And so we're called, remember your creator. Live a God-centered life focused on your creator. And notice he says, your creator. He doesn't say God. He doesn't say Lord. He says your creator. And he, does so that he does that specifically because he wants us to focus our attention on the one who made us. He is your creator. He's my creator. He's the creator of this world. And... Where there's a creator, there's a purpose for creation. And in the verses that follow, right, we're created for a season. And then at the end of these verses, it's as if there's an uncreation happening. There's, there's this unmaking that comes our way that we experience by old age and the passing of time. So he's saying, God made you for a time and purpose. But the day is coming when that time and purpose will be unmade and your body will fall apart and you will get old. So he's saying, that's coming to all of you, so live now. We're going to be tempted in those days, he'll tell us, to think that there is no purpose. As we age, we're going to be tempted to lose heart, to give up. So the preacher says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, because the days are coming when, when it will not be easy for us to take pleasure in life. Now, I, I want to read this quote by one commentator. I'm not, I'm not here all the time, but, but I know this will resonate with many of you. He's talking about the, the day that's coming when it'll be hard to take pleasure in life. Notice what this, this author says. There will come, this will come at a stage when there is no longer the resilience of youth or the prospect of recovery to offset it. In one's early years, in the greater part of life, troubles and illnesses are chiefly setbacks not disasters. One expects the sky to clear eventually. It is hard to adjust to the closing of that long chapter, to know that now, in the final stretch, there will be no improvement. The clouds will always gather again, and time will no longer heal, but rather kill. 
what a vivid description. In one's early years, the greater part of life, troubles and illnesses. Oh, oh, I'll, I'll recover. Yeah, yeah, I, I hurt my back or I've got, I've got a bug, but, but I'll get over it. Well, there's days coming, and I know, I know some of you are there, where these sicknesses, they're, they're not just setbacks. It's like, I can't come to church today because if I get sick, I might not be alive. And so that, that's what he's saying. There's, there are days coming when it's going to be hard to see purpose and to take pleasure in life. And life will not be able to be enjoyed in the same way. And so you'll be tempted to say, pleasure is impossible. Enjoyment of life is out of my reach. And so the preacher would say to you, what the preacher calls you to, is to remember your creator. You have purpose. You have a creator. You still have time. Enjoy life. There is one who has made you and one who has made the world. And he is the one who can be trusted. He's the one who can be enjoyed even in the midst of the dark ages. And so verses 2 through 7, I mean, these, these, are, these are powerful. There's powerful imagery here. And I think as a whole, this is just the decline of, of people in, in verses 2 through 7 of chapter 12. And so I'm going to read it from a, from a modern translation. It's the New Living Translation. Because this translation does a great job of, of interpreting the images. And I think it's, I think it's mostly right but listen to how this paraphrase of these verses comes across as the experience of, of growing old and wearing down. So this is verses 2 through 7 in a paraphrase translation. And, and so the call is to remember him. So, so let us listen how the New Living Translation says. It says, Remember him before the light of the sun, moon, and stars is dim to your old eyes, and rain clouds continually darken your sky. Remember him before your legs, the guards of your house, start to tremble. And before your shoulders, the strong men stoop. Remember him before your teeth, your few remaining servants stop grinding. And before your eyes, the women looking through the windows see dimly. Remember him before the door to life's opportunities is closed and the sound of work fades. Now you rise at the first chirping of the birds, but then all their sounds will grow faint. Remember him before you become fearful of falling and worry about danger in the streets before your hair turns white like an almond tree in bloom, and you drag along without energy like a dying grasshopper, and the caperberry no longer inspires desire. Remember him before you near the grave, your everlasting home, when the mourners will weep at your funeral. Yes, remember your creator now, while you're young, before the silver cord of life snaps and the golden bowl is broken. Don't wait until the water jar is smashed at the spring and the pulley is broken at the well. For then, and here's his point, isn't it? Then the dust will return to the earth and the spirit will return to the God who gave it. Then you will die, the preacher is saying. And then your ability to enjoy life and to remember your creator will be gone. And so, much like verses 7 through 10 of chapter 11, these eight verses of chapter 12 call us to live. Live God-centered lives as long as you have life. While you still can. Because, as verse 8 tells us, as he kind of closes out this major section of the book, verse 8, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is the exact same phrase he used in chapter 1, verse 2. And we said back then that the better translation is better fleeting Fleeting, everything is fleeting, life is fleeting, everything is fleeting. 
And so he closes his book and only leaves the conclusion, which we'll look at in two weeks. But, but as we close, I just want to make uh, a particular point of application, actually two particular points of application, recognizing that many of you here, as I'm reading through those verses, that, that paraphrases I'm describing, you probably feel like you're living there in verses two through seven. I recognize that. And so I just have two points of application that are, that are specific to you. And so the first point of application is, is simply to rejoice. Rejoice in the life that you still have. Find joy. It's not impossible. Don't be the stereotypical old person. Don't be the grumpy old woman or the grumpy old man. Right? You don't have to. You don't have to. It's going to appear as though there's no pleasure, but that's not true when you remember your creator. And so, brother, sister, you have reason to rejoice. And so as long as you are alive, you are called to rejoice. And so this call to remember your creator doesn't stop when you reach a certain age. It extends to the grave. And it's not until you're in your grave that you're freed from your obligation to rejoice. And so the first, first call to you and to me, to everyone here, is simply to rejoice. But then the last call and the call I want to give you as your pastor and to encourage you is simply to hold on, to hold on. As you've been through the days of your youth and as you're nearing the apparent end of your road, the, the, the end of your pilgrimage, I know you're tired and feeling worn out and discouraged. I know it. I know you are. And so I just want to encourage you to hold on. Hold on just a little bit longer. Rejoice while you still have life. Remember your creator. And so in the midst of aching bodies and, and fleeting minds, hold on, don't forget your creator. Don't forget that he's a, he has a plan for you even now. Even amidst the doctor's appointments and the body aches in your fading memory. Hold on, brother and sister. God will not forsake you. We won't forsake you. I won't forsake you, but God won't. So hold on. And so I want to close with an interesting story. So a hymn, I'd never heard this hymn before, but Charles Wesley, he wrote over, I think, 900 hymns. But the last hymn he ever wrote was just one, uh, a one-verse hymn. And he wrote it actually on the day that he died. He was so weak, he was so tired, he couldn't even dictate, or he couldn't even write it. So he dictates it to his wife. And the hymn is called In Age and Feebleness Extreme. And so if you go to the next slide, this is, this is his hymn. It's just, this is all it is, but he writes this on his deathbed. So this, is my, this is my hope. This is the best I can, I can do to you. I can point you in the way that John Wesley pointed himself and, and all those who've come after him. But, but he writes, In age and feebleness extreme, who shall a helpless worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art. Strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, let me catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity. So that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me, that we would find strength in Christ for our failing flesh and hearts, and that we would be driven until he calls us home. We would be driven by his smile, and then we can drop into eternity like Charles Wesley did and like many of our loved ones have. And so let's hold on. Let's pray as we close.